Welcome to the Outrider Podcast, a show for the literary outrider. To paraphrase from the book Outrider by the poet Anne Waldman, the outrider is not an outsider, but someone, perhaps even an outlaw, who rides parallel to the mainstream, is the shadow and the conscience of the mainstream, is a spiritual insider, practiced in negative capability, who travels where the mainstream can't go. So welcome to Outrider Live, words and music number two. Uh, for those here at the show who uh, don't know, I'm Jason Quinn Malott. I'm the host of the Outrider podcast and author of the novel The Evolution of Shadows, published by Unbridled Books. I've been doing the Outrider podcast uh, since about 2013, and that's been mostly author conversations and then now short series on selected topics. Earlier this year, I did a, a six-part series with my friend, the poet Delia Tramontina, on uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. And by the time this show airs, this live episode, we'll have released the final episode of a six-part series we're calling Bad Business, where I talk about uh, crime and detective fiction with some uh, <coughs> other writer friends of mine, Todd Robbins and Paul Fecto. Uh, so before I introduce tonight's performers, I'd like to recognize my show's producer, Heather Eden. She couldn't make it tonight, unfortunately, but that's okay. Um, she's been doing some excellent work making this show and all of my shows now listenable. Um, <laughs> now, there are a couple of shows out there right now that you might raise an eyebrow at that she's produced, but believe me that if it wasn't for her, those things would be virtually unlistenable. So that's just a, a little hint about my, uh, my audio producing skills, which is why I just figured out how to set it up and press record and, you know, not be fancy. So I'd also like to tease some of the upcoming shows we have planned for 2019. We're working things out with uh, John Jenkinson over here and his wife Kathy for a live show. John, if you don't know, is a poet and a singer-songwriter, and Kathy is a short story writer who's been nominated for at least one Pushcart Prize, correct? Two? Two? Yeah, so she's good. And we're also planning a show um, with Siobhan Scary out here. We're in negotiations. <laughs> but I'm going to get her up there. It's You'll like it. And I'm also trying to negotiate with uh, Darren Dufresne at WSU to get him up here to do one of these. He's tentatively agreed to it. And let's see. Oh, so just for everybody else, we're an equal opportunity show. So if you know of some writers and musicians that might be interested in doing one of these little quiet events, let me know. Um, the writing life is kind of lonely, and the business is, you know, horribly business. Um, so my intention behind this show is to kind of showcase those in Wichita who are engaged with two of the things that I love, writing and music. I'm pleased to introduce tonight's readers and our musical performer. Um, Michelle Barrett attempted to write her first novel over spring and summer break while in the seventh grade. That's about when I started, too. Rock on. Um, some 15 years later, she finally finished a first draft of an entirely different novel. That's how it goes, Michelle. <laughs> You're cool. Um, some of her work could be classified as fantasy or science fiction or literary fiction. Basically, she writes whatever she wants, which is cool. Keep doing that. While pursuing other interests, such as retail management, catering, and paying the bills, 
Writing is a thing that, that she keeps coming back to. And if you ask her why, she'll probably talk about the importance of story and narrative to the human species or the value that comes from creating things. But it's probably much more about her own personal madness and love than anything else. And then we have Kansas-born musician Eliana. Right on. I've been practicing that because I'm always afraid of, of names that look different to me. And sadly, I'm a monolinguistic white guy. <laughs> so she found her musical roots in classical instrumentals and developed an interest in guitar. Following an accident that resulted in the loss of partial hand function, she delved into vocals, songwriting, and jazz-fueled folk-inspired sound. The daughter of a professional violinist in New York, Eliana is currently writing songs and recording her first original solo album. And finally, our last reader, Sean Craver, holds a master's in theology, a liberal arts degree in English and history, and is in the process of finding an agent for his first novel, Aunt Deanie, The Fiddler, and Seven Years on the River. Sean is a featured author in the current And Both magazine, and his poems and music have appeared in or been reviewed by Spin Magazine, Coelacanth Literary Journal, and Both Magazine, Bluegrass Unlimited Magazine, and America's Best Emerging Writers. So welcome our performers, and let's have fun. OK, so some very small amount of background. Uh, this first piece I'm going to share with you is a portion of the novel that I've at least finished the first draft of, and I'm in like the fourth or fifth draft of now. <laughs> um, two, this is a novel where you have a small subspecies of humans who are able to live for long extended periods of time and also have developed certain abilities with that period of time. <laughs> All right. Montgomery Lewis's wife, Kimberly, lay on her back on a cot with her arms at her sides and her eyes absently looking at the ceiling. Claude sat next to her in the midst of his metal and woodworking equipment. The lathe hummed on in the background for ambiance. We're almost finished with the MRI, ma'am. Claude glanced at his watch. You have 10 minutes to go. You've done a very good job staying still. Her mouth twitched into a hollow smile. I've had some practice with this, Doc. Killian and Montgomery sat in padded folding chairs in the hallway outside of the workspace and quietly observed. She can't hear us, Montgomery asked in a hushed whisper. Killian shifted in a seat. She thinks she's hearing and seeing all the usual things associated with an MRI. Even if she does catch something here and there, her conscious mind won't process it. But Claude has something running, so if we keep our voices low, I'll doubt she hear anything we'll say. Monty nodded, his brow furrowed with fear as he watched. Will this work? He asked. Yes. I'll have a better idea how many treatments it'll take once I perform the ceremony, but it'll work. I'll be able to determine the size and locations of the tumors and slowly eradicate them. If you could request a decrease in the amount of chemotherapy treatments she receives, that would be best, but you should still continue them. That way you'll avoid suspicion and have a medical reason for her improved health. Monty leaned forward onto his lap. He held his head in his hands. Killian patted his back. It'll be all right. For now, maybe. At best, we have 30 or 40 years left, but how much of that time will we spend doing this? Prolonging the inevitable, Hillian looked at his friend. He carefully picked through his words to see if there were any worth sharing. After a time, he said, don't mourn until you have to. 
And when you finally do, I'll mourn with you. With a heavy nod, Monty sat back up in his seat. Claude gave a sharp look to both of them. Killian stood and ducked into his office and pulled out a vial of blood from his mini-fridge and placed it in his vest pocket. He strode back to where Kimberly lay. You're doing very well, Kimberly. Thank you for your patience. She gave a dry laugh in acknowledgement. Killian took his dagger and the vial of blood from, his, from within his vest. He softly slid the blade down the top of his hand. He opened the vial and swung the glass upside down with his finger over the opening. He touched the blood on his finger to the wound on his arm. Something within him thrummed like a tuning fork, and the foreign blood sung out in B-flat. Kimberly's natural hum suddenly became apparent to him. With careful steps, Killian circled Kimberly. At each cardinal point, he placed a drop of blood, and then at the points in between. With each new drop, he felt her thrum more keenly. As he traced this path several times, he wordlessly mouthed, may the blessing of light be upon you, light on the outside and on the inside. Kimberly took a deep breath that she held for a moment. Doc, I feel strange. Killian could feel Claude's glance on his back. Claude responded, are you feeling unwell? Not exactly, I just feel different. We have another two minutes, can you make it until then? She paused before she said, all right, I can do that. Killian softly worded, may the blessing of God's soft rain be on you, falling gently on your head, refreshing your soul, as he went around his work. Muscle, blood, bone, nerves, and other types of viscera all sung out in a harmonious chorus. Killian looked through the melody and slowly began to discover each discordant note. Once he felt certain he had identified every tumorous cell, he knelt at Kimberly's head. He rested his open hands on either side of her forehead, far enough away to avoid contact. May you understand the strength and power of God in a thunderstorm in winter and the beauty of creation. Killian began to sweat as energy poured through him and into Kimberly. She suddenly inhaled. Her eyes grew wide, but she remained silent. The air around them grew heavy, as if with an electrical storm. Sixty seconds passed before Killian stood on shaking legs. He stumbled out of the workspace and into his office. Good job, Kimberly, Claude said. Now let's get you out of this machine. Killian fell into his couch. He basked in a sunbeam and lapped up the energy. Monty peeked into the room. Are you free to talk? Of course. He motioned to a chair. Please sit. Monty gave him a hard look. Thank you for doing this. It's the least I could do. Killian closed his eyes as he spoke. He leaned back into the sofa with arms and legs spread. What do I owe you? Nothing. We've already discussed this. He heard the chair creak as Monty squirmed. It should only take three or more likely four treatments. She'll be feeling much better and her doctors will notice a marked improvement. Oh, and make sure she drinks at least two liters of water today. She'll basically be pissing the cancer cells out. When should we come back again? Killian shook his head. His eyes remained closed. I can't think that far in advance right now. We'll have to time it with our actual chemotherapy treatments. Schedule it with Claude. Do you think I should tell her? He opened his eyes. That's up to you. I don't know what the right answer is. You've told both of your previous wives. One seemed to take it easily enough. For the other, it was a burden. Monty looked forward with his eyes focused on his decision. Once he stood, he reached his hand out to Killian. Killian pulled himself to his feet. 
pushed Monty's hand aside and gave him a hug. Let's do a better job of keeping in touch, he said. Thank you. Let's hear it for Aliana with that song. Thank you. I met Aliana uh, sev several months ago. Um, we have a job with cubicles and <laughs> telephones and things that we're required to do to make money. And then we do these other things. And when I was talking to her about music, I thought, oh, you know, she seems like she knows what she's talking about. And then um, I heard her sing and invited her here, so thank you. <laughs> that was wonderful. I'm going to read uh, um, a chapter, chapter one. This was published in uh, a really uh, neat literary magazine out of Hutchinson called Anne Both. I'm trying to get this uh, novel with an agent, which is a form of torture. But I'm okay with pain. <laughs> chapter one, Aunt Deanie. Because I'm dark 
and always shall be. Let my book be dark and mysterious in those places where I will not show myself. Merlin. Aunt Deanie taught me how to be myself, to respect the attributes that God gave me. She said the world is full of people who can't handle that, can't see how wonderfully and perfectly flawed they are because some preacher or person beat that thought right out of them with a Bible or a belt or an unkind word, and that's why they get angry and mean and tell lies and work like the devil to gossip and scheme when they don't get their way over others. I used to credit my God-given laziness for keeping me from all of that. I'm not afraid of a little work, but being mean just takes a whole lot of work I'm not willing to do. Aunt Deanie's hair was long, straight, dark, brown, sometimes black, and sometimes when the sun hit it, it glowed red from beneath. Her mother died with coal black hair at 93. Cherokee blood, Shawnee blood, Irish, and maybe even Pawnee. It was a mysterious genealogy, and we were white and Western European, but there was something in her face and eyes, something alive in the face of death. Sometimes we'd walk down to the pitcher from Deanie's house. It stood on the end of town at the bridge over Blood Creek Hollow. Aunt Deanie would go, and sometimes I'd go with her. It was a beer joint, and Mama didn't like it, but they had the best French fried potatoes I'd ever eaten. The men there would talk to Deanie like she was one of them, but with respect. Deanie said they did the french fries right. They fried them twice. I'd order a beer and they'd give it to me and Deanie would only finish half of hers, so I'd finish it for her. There was a picture of Jesus on the wall and a U.S. flag and a genuine German black forest made cuckoo clock that wasn't timed right or something. The bird would pop out and its little feathers would ruffle and it would say kook and then stop before the <laughs> ooh. And every time it did, Deanie would laugh and her brown eyes would twinkle. Her eyes were the clearest eyes I'd ever seen in the red and blue neon Schlitz light in the window reflected in them. I asked Deanie what she thought about the preacher running down the pitcher all the time and she said she wondered why he even bothered to bring up it in church. If she wanted the pitcher, she'd go to the damn pitcher. If she wanted church, she'd go to church. That preacher has a screw loose, she said. Yep, I think it already fell out. The clock struck and made a kook. Deanie laughed so hard she snorted the words out. Maybe we ought to invite the preacher to the pitcher for a beer with us. I smiled at her, drank the rest of her beer, and imagined the preacher sitting there with us. I don't think I would. No, me either. He's a horse's ass, Deanie said. We talked about horses, and I told her I was allergic to them. <laughs> it didn't stop me from trying to ride them, though, and I almost died riding a horse one time. It took me wheezing across the field and down into a low creek bed where the trees were growing and the thorn trees were growing. The dry creek was littered with stones of all shapes and sizes. I imagined being thrown off and splitting my head open on one of them. Pictured the blood splattering on the white thorn trees and pollocking the gray stones and shimmering red. As the horse blundered through, the thorns pulled and pulled and pulled at my hair as I leaned down to hug the beast. 
and the white thorns in my own brown mane almost pulled me down and off to my worst fears. My face was bloody, my legs were galled afterwards from holding on, holding on with all my might. And when I came up out of the creek bread and towards possible doom wading over the steep ridgeline of the mountain, I managed to get off the horse somehow. I don't know how. The books I read about Indians killing buffalo with bows and arrows from the backs of horses racing across the Great Plains became even more glorious in my mind. And today I think of the forest, not the thorns, nor the plains and the story. It tells the shadows of white pines and hemlocks against my face, their glowing green needles heated by the sun, their fragrance mingled with the mineral smell of sandy black earth and river that flies over gray and purple sandstone waterfalls and the old forests of Hallam County where I ran to after Deanie died. The broken light making exact rays to the soft brown pine-needled floor and hiding in the dark trunks of rotted trees. Lovers' eyes at home there in the green. Sweet honeysuckles dancing with the wind and the light. Arms reaching out and holding each other, holding on to all there is as it holds us all. Birds and bees, but sometimes the bees quit the hive and it dies and falls from the tree to be smashed onto the rocks below. And there's something in this world that wants to grab us and hold on to us and send us down and down and down to doom and death to the very bottom of death. And Aunt Nettini, she knew that better than anyone. What you want, 
I can taste you, oh, I can taste you slipping right through my hands. So just take from me what you want, what you This is a poem I wrote of about five years ago. I followed the constellations on your shoulders through the undulations of your earth. With each rise and fall are carried the etchings of our mirth. Over forest and valley we wander in ponderous delight until closer we do come to rest in a light. the groove of the world in your hands all together pulled apart with the beat of the drum inside and how strange and infinite and lovely and fucking hard life can be moved beneath my being like the petals of 
of an effervescent rose And even my pulse beat aligns With the rhythms I find among the green Now here in the shadows we lie Spread out for the lonesome sky Chapter 9, Raising Jesus. When we did go to church, Deanie never went on Wednesday nights except one time for a revival with special music. Aunt Deanie wore a bright yellow dress and a white and gold sash pulled tight around her waist and stood out like the first daffodil of spring coming up through the mud. There was a visiting singer with hair like Elvis and me, Mama, and Deanie thought we'd all give him a chance because he wasn't a Baptist and we liked good singing. And I forget any of the songs he sang, but I think he must have said, praise Jesus nine times between every song. <laughs> I want you to close your eyes and lift your hands and praise Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise you. Praise Jesus. I know the Lord is in this place tonight. Pray Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus. Jesus. Pray Jesus. Raising Jesus. And just when everyone was getting glassy-eyed, putting up with the praise banter between what was some fairly good singing, some of his crew brought in a boy wearing a rock and, to rock and roll t-shirt. They were going to throw the devil out of him. The singer stopped singing and told the organist to keep on playing. And after another round of praise Jesuses, he started yelling at the long-haired boy while a man held him down. I think if Deanie wouldn't have been there, he might have had a chance. Between damning rock and roll and yelling at the demon, the singer kept looking at Deanie. And the boy got away, <laughs> ran out of the church faster than a scalded dog. Later, Deanie told me and Mama the boy didn't have a demon. And she said she wondered about the singer, though. <laughs> the preacher didn't have any special music after that. In some ways, church was our entertainment, and I liked Sunday dinners afterwards. For Sunday dinners, Aunt Deanie always brought a big old bottle of red wine, and we'd sit around and talk about things we never talked about before. 
I blurted out a rumor I heard about Deanie. She looked at me and said, if people want to pin things on me to save their pride and it makes them feel better about their miserable lives, then I'll just let them do it. Ain't that what Jesus did for us all? And before I could answer, she poured some more wine and Mama nervously passed me the biscuits. I never told anyone this before in fear of retribution, but I've never cared for biscuits. <laughs> they went down easy with the wine, though. Wine was the first miracle of Jesus, and so I thought it was a good starting place. I moved on to blackberry brandy, and then eventually found that I liked good bourbon. Aunt Deanie talked more about wine than the preacher talked about the devil. I think he talked more about the devil than he did about Jesus. And when he got excited, his face would turn red, his eyebrows would turn up at the ends, and he'd spit. One reason, I'd never sit in the front row. I'd rather be punched in the face than be spit on by a man. I drank a lot of wine that day, and we sat around the table and laughed about the neighbor boy a long time ago who got his head stuck in a big old industrial-sized peanut butter can. Deanie and Mama put uh, grape jelly on his head to get him out of it. <laughs> Mama talked about the whole thing caused her to burn her chicken. <laughs> and then we talked about old Tommy Biscuit Mouth. They called him Tommy Biscuit Mouth because he talked so much that when he came over for dinner, Mama would offer him biscuit after biscuit after biscuit just to get him to shut the hell up. Deanie said he died in the army, and we ought not laugh. But we couldn't help it, and so we laughed some more. Then Aunt Deanie asked Mom if she knew the Yellow Ribbon song. And between them, they put together the verses, between cigarettes, coffee, and moments of silence. And they didn't stop until they had it all written down. Then Deanie and Mama sang it out in a terse mountain lilt. In her hair she wore a yellow ribbon. She wore it in the springtime in the merry month of May. And if you ask her why the hell she wore it, she wore it for her soldier far, far away. All around she pushed a baby carriage. She pushed it in the springtime in the merry month of May. And if you ask her why the hell she pushed it, she pushed it for her soldier who was far, far away, far away, oh, far away. She pushed it for her soldier who was far, far away. Oh, her daddy, he kept a loaded shotgun. He kept it in the springtime in the merry month of May. And if you ask him why the hell he kept it, he kept it for her soldier who was far, far away. On a grave she left the pretty flowers. She left them in the springtime in the merry month of May. And if you ask her why the hell she left them, she left them for her soldier who was far, far away. Far away, oh, far away. She left him for her soldier who was far, far away. 
And when I turned 16, Mama told me I could go to church if I wanted to on my own accord. I still went sometimes, and I kept an eye out for after-church meals and the annual picnic. On picnic Sunday after the sermon, the preacher wanted to talk to me behind the usual shake and howdy. I said hello and tried not to notice his rockabilly hair, but no time I was in the pavilion piling Virginia sugar-cured ham on my plate. I like to put applesauce over it and eat it that way. Danny was, Dini was standing with her hand on her hip, looking over the green and yellow jello molds that had chunks of things in the middle of them. She shook her head, smiled, and said, I don't think people know how they make this stuff the same way they make glue. The chattering of the old ladies stopped for a moment, and I knew what she meant. It always amazed me what the women of the church did with jello. Creamy orange fluff, <laughs> applesauce berry mold, pineapple lime jello salad, cherry coke jello salad, orange pretzel fluff, red, white, and blue flag salad, seven layer salad, fluffy cranberry mousse, cool cucumber jello salad, cranberry cream, creamy fruit mold, golden glow salad. Raspberry congealed, snowy raspberry mold, apricot aspic, marshmallow lime, cabbage cucumber cups, fluffy berry delight, and three ring mold, and on and on and on. I skipped off into the woods behind the church and sat alone on a rock and thought about things somehow, and I didn't know, but Jesus and the Bible and Solomon and all of the ancient Jewish prophets seemed to be connected to a little old church below the Mason-Dixon line and a myriad of neon-glowing jello molds more than they did the Middle East and Elvis and Jesus and jello. I don't know how to explain it any further. Sitting all alone, mouth full of gum in the driveway. My friends aren't far in the back of my car, lay their bodies. Where's my mind? Where's my mind? Where's my mind? They'll be here soon. Looking through my room for the money I'm biting my nails I'm too young to go to jail It's kind of funny Where's my mind? Where's my mind? Where's my mind? Where's my mind? Maybe it's in the gutter Where I left my lover 
My V was for vendetta. I thought I'd feel better. Now I got a belly ache. Now everything I do, the way I wear my noose like a necklace. I want to make them scared like I could be anywhere, like I'm reckless. Where's my mind? Where's my mind? I've lost my mind. I don't mind. Maybe it's in the gutter where I left my lover. What an expensive fake. My view is for vendetta. I thought I'd feel better, but I got a belly it's in the gutter where I left my lover. What an expensive fake. My view was for vendetta. Thought I'd feel better, but I got a belly ache. Where's my mind? Where's my mind? Where's my mind? I've lost my mind. I've lost my mind, I don't mind. But maybe it's in the gutter where I left my lover. What an expensive fake. V was for vendetta, thought I'd feel better. But I got a belly ache. Where's my mind? Where's my mind? Where's my mind? This is a short story entitled Carrion Dinner. Lucille had had enough of this godforsaken day. She stomped through the living room, out of the kitchen, and into the cramped backyard that belonged to her son, Bill, and daughter-in-law, Marion. She went around the corner of the house next to the rubbish bins and several large white buckets. With an angry huff, she sat on one of the buckets and dug through her purse, scattering pens, lipstick, mascara, and bobby pins onto the grass. It wasn't until the last of the old receipts fell to the ground that her fingers grazed the cool metal cigarette case. Her heart noticeably slowed as she retrieved a clove cigarette. She breathed in deeply and slowly its spice aroma. She couldn't remember the last time she had held one. Maybe a week? Two? She took the lighter out of her pocket, placed the cigarette in her mouth, and took another deep breath as the tip of the cigarette flared with a puff of white smoke. Something about her daughter-in-law, Marion, always put her in this state. She'd look at Lucille with a slow, dull, downright bovine expression and hardly utter a word. And she would snicker whenever Lucille's husband opened his goddamn mouth. Ever a comedian, Kenneth had a talent for making people laugh, especially the young, pretty ones. Although Marion wasn't so young anymore, and even then could scarcely be called pretty. Today, she seemed even more irritatingly withdrawn. She didn't even laugh at Kenneth's jokes. Things will get better when Bill gets here, Lucille reminded herself. Lucille wondered what in the world possessed Bill to marry that girl. 
He was such a popular boy. In the beginning, she had suspected he had gotten her pregnant, but a baby never materialized. She must have gotten rid of it one way or another. A Newfoundland puppy appeared some years later, but otherwise, their marriage remained unfruitful. Lucille jumped to attention and scanned the pock-marked yard, suddenly aware of that dog shit could be anywhere. She took several steps forward, but the only debris she spotted was a small pile of dirt with a shovel laying atop it. The yard appeared to be as empty of the dog's presence as the house had been earlier. Why hadn't Bill married Rebecca Sanchez? Lucille would often think about Rebecca. She hadn't liked her much at the time. There would have been too many cultural differences. But Rebecca, the accountant, sounded much better than Mary and the butcher. It takes a special kind of trash for a wound to want to work in a field like that. Or even that girl after Rebecca, the olive-skinned one with the mole. What was her name? Or really, any of the other girls. She had always suspected that he still might have a few irons in the fire. He was married to Marion, after all. He had to do something to make life tolerable. She glared back at the house. Why, God. She turned and kicked the bucket she had been sitting on. Its contents sloshed back and forth, but it remained unmoved. Seething, Lucille put her heel against the bucket's rim and pushed it over. Its lid popped right off as it fell. Black, red liquid, gallons of it, sloshed onto the grass. It lay in a thick pool atop the ground. Tipping the bucket took more force than Lucille had expected. She stumbled forward and squelched into the grass. Two realizations struck almost simultaneously. The first being that her suede boots were absorbing whatever the shit was. And the second, this shit seemed an awful lot like blood. Seraphy black clots clung to her boots as the puddle spread out through the sheaves of grass into a small pond. A heavy, pungent smell practically pushed Lucille back. She stepped farther away. Where had this come from? What on earth could produce that much blood? Marion might have been a butcher, but neither she nor Bill did any hunting. The wooden back door opened with a creak and interrupted her thoughts. Dinner's ready, a soft voice called from within the house, just out of sight. The door hung open as it waited for a reply. Lucille wanted to shout, why in the world did he leave those buckets lying about where just about anyone could get to them? Instead, she cleared her throat. I'll be right in, Marion. The door closed with a soft bang. Lucille carelessly wiped her foot in the grass before she picked up her things and straightened herself and walked back into the kitchen. A bloody footprint trailed behind her on the linoleum. Serves her right, she thought. It's only right she cleans up this mess. Maybe I'll even bill her for the shoes. She stepped into the dining room. Kenneth sat at the narrow edge of the far end of the table, across from an empty seat, and faced the door Lucille entered from. Marion sat on the side to his right, with his empty seat across from her. Feeling refreshed, Kenneth asked with the hint of a devilish smile on his face. She gave him an icy glare and then coolly asked, Bill isn't here yet? Marion's short bob bounced as she shook her head no without turning to look. He's your son, Kenneth said with a deep-throated chuckle. Lucille lightly stepped around the table. The plates in front of Marion and Kenneth had green beans, potatoes, and large slices of cut beef topped with a line of brown gravy. She hated beef. It was just so chewy and ribboned with fat and gristle. Mary knew this. She did things like this on purpose. I can't eat. Sit down, Lucille. Luc Marion made something special for you. Lucille glanced to her plate and noticed her meat dish looked like veal or maybe some sort of pork. She sat. 
Kenneth had already started to eat. Aren't we going to wait for Bill? Why? He knows when dinner starts and we're all in time. Lucille glanced up. Marion's gaze was drawn down to her plate. She hadn't touched her food. There was something distinctly melancholy about the girl today. It galled her. Lucille wanted Bill to be here too, but you weren't going to see her mope about it. She picked up her silverware with a sigh and sliced off a bit of meat. It was a bit like beef, but softer and just a tad gamey like veal, but seasoned and cooked to perfection. A small, imperceptible moan of delight escaped Lucille's throat. It was very good. As Lucille ate her fill, her mood lightened. Marion had always been an excellent cook. Why she worked in a butcher shop instead of a kitchen was beyond her understanding. Where in the world is Bill anyway, Lucille asked. A long moan of silence sat in the air before Marion replied, I, I'm not sure. Annoyed, Lucille dabbed her napkin against her lips. Well, when is he supposed to be back? He isn't. For the first time in the entire evening, their eyes met. Lucille's mind whirled through all the calculations and probabilities and suddenly spit out the idea. That was Bill's blood. That's what was in the bucket and now soaking into the ground in the backyard and tracked in through the kitchen and now onto the dining room carpet. That pile of dirt, that's where he is. She looked to her plate and felt a soft bit of half-chewed meat in the cheek of her mouth. She wanted to spit it out. The muscles in her throat moved, but she swallowed it instead. A strangled cry wheezed from her lungs. She rose to her feet, threw her shoulders back, and straightened herself to her full intimidating height of 5'1". All the rage she had felt over the years that had sat in her belly burned and grew into a wildfire. How did he fucking do it? Kenneth and Marion both looked shock shocked. Lucille... No, Kenneth, just no. You can't take her side in this. Tears of rage welled up and rolled down her cheeks. I saw the blood. Fuck, I even knocked it over. The dirt, that fucking pile of dirt. Confusion and shock filled Marion's dull brown eyes and only stoked Lucille's flame. That's where you buried him, didn't you? You never fucking deserved. Marion stretched her arms out in the air and then firmly placed them on the table as she pushed herself up. Leaning forward, she glowered down at her plate. You think I killed him? You think I killed Bill? Are you saying? The air went out of Lucille's lungs. She sank to her seat. A weight lifted from Marion. She no longer leaned on the table. Her arms and neck were taut and controlled, the work-hewned muscles of a butcher as strong as marble and as smooth as alabaster. This woman was a goddess who could strike a man down with a glance, but wouldn't deign to stain her clothes. Contempt filled her gaze as she looked down on Lucille. Bill lost his job several months ago, she said firmly and clearly. He's in a large amount of debt to creditors and dealers. He sought treatment. That's when I found out about the affairs. That's when I kicked him out. The room fell silent as the women stared at one another. Lucille turned away first. Marion slowly sat, her gaze never wavering from Lucille. Kenneth amiably broke up the silence. I'm sorry about this whole mess. Thank you for telling us. It's only right what you did. They sat in silence. Lucille's brain spun in place. She wished Bill were actually dead. Eventually, the tines of Kenneth's 
fork clicked against the plate as he resumed eating. Lucille looked at her food, the food that Marion had especially and expertly made for her. Perhaps she was wrong about the girl. It's delicious, Lucille finally admitted. What is it anyway? Marion smiled. When Bill left, he peeled out of the driveway without looking and hit the dog. I didn't want it to go to waste.
Chapter 12, going west. Good God Almighty, let me escape going west. I ended up on a bus heading west through the Ohio rain, a bag of clothes, a notebook, and a fiddle is all I carried. It was in Iowa that I saw my first Midwestern thunderstorm. I watched it roll in and I watched it roll out. Back in the hills, a storm could hang around for days or they'd sneak in and sneak out like a weasel in a hen house, in and out with a flash and a commotion before disappearing over the hill. When the storm passed us, the bus chased it west for a hundred miles. And when the sun came out through the remaining clouds, the big sky flamed in an orange-red burst and the light shot down in linear silver rays. It reminded me of when I was cleaning the icicles off of the eaves of Aunt Deanie's house one winter, and a chunk of gathered ice fell and bludgeoned my head. From the collision, a dream of distance and time emerged. I saw stars and brilliant lights just before I fell down and down and down into a pile of snow. I lost myself for a few minutes in a new shining and quiet dream world, veiled in violet folds of heaven slices of mountain and a misty sea. The dream grew and grew. I knew there was no end to this dream world. It was not sleep, but an awakening and a shimmering white emerald of a city ahead with splashes of crimson and green, high in the infinite blue of its heavens, a quiet wave, a quiet white cloud lingered, translucent, Lost and forgotten winds slept to the sounds of music I had yet to play. Though at first magical riding the bus turned out to not be the best way to travel at all. There was a man on the bus, a preacher on the bus. Maybe not a preacher, but he sure did talk a lot to whoever would listen to him about Jesus. He was reading a smutty pot boiler with a half-naked woman on the front of it. I just looked out the window as he ran his mouth about salvation and how simple it is and how Jesus was the only way and it only takes faith and nothing else and being born again and taking Jesus as your personal Savior and reading the right Bible and going to the right church and voting the right way and celebrating Christmas on the right day and going to church on the right day and giving your tithes and being rewarded sevenfold and how evil the world is out there and being born again and how he is safe with Jesus cooped up in a little box with Jesus and the Lord and Jesus and the Lord and Jesus and the Lord and the last days we're living in and any moment Jesus will appear and how he was once blind and now he sees and he understands what it means and justification through smut and saved by smut and faith and this man is on drugs, speed maybe. <laughs> I bet he feels born again. And again, and again, and again, and again, he wouldn't shut up and went on and on and on and on and on and annoying, annoying being trapped on the bus. Reminded me of being trapped in church Sunday morning when the preacher was blaring nonsense as I would sit and read the Bible for myself, itching to get out of there, peeking up to the church window every now and then to see the sun coming through, 
and the light and the shadows of waving branches casting themselves into the building. Hey there, fiddler, where you going? Oh, South Dakota, maybe. No, I mean for eternity. <laughs> well, I ain't dead yet, so probably South Dakota. <laughs> he didn't find my reply humorous, and his wide eyes tractor beamed into mine. I'm talking about your soul. I'm going where the soul of man never dies. I've heard the song, I said. What song? The song where the soul of man never dies. I haven't heard it. I gathered that. <laughs> I recited some words. To Canaan's land, I'm on my way where the soul never dies. My darkest night will turn to day where the soul of man never dies. That's what I'm talking about, fiddler man. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Amen. He pointed his book at me with each word. Poke, poke, poke. I looked at my fiddle case, and I wished there was a machine gun inside. So you know Jesus as your personal Savior, and you're confident that if you died today that your soul would spend all eternity with Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who was bruised for your iniquities, crucified and rose again, so that you, a sinner, would be washed by his blood and saved from the fire of eternal hell and damnation forever? He didn't blink through the entire sentence. His beady gray eyes shook a little in the sockets. He forgot begotten, but I didn't point that out. Yep, golly. What are you reading there, I asked. What, this? I don't know what this is. It's just something I picked up. For the first time, he blinked and twitched and scratched his face. I saw his pasty skin cling to the bones of his skull. His neck veins pulsed. His eyes shook even more in their sockets. He ground his teeth and he tapped his foot. I see. Well, good talking to you, I said. He scratched open a scab on his right cheekbone and a drop of blood began its descent down his pasty white face and when it reached his chin, it hung there. A lady sitting nearby pointed it out and handed him a tissue. He blotted at his face. You missed it, she said. Did I get it? <laughs> missed it. Did I get it? Almost higher. Did I get it? Up on your cheek, there's more blood. <laughs> Did I get it all? He opened the blood-dotted tissue and smeared his face around in it. <laughs> there, not quite, she said. Let me get you a mirror. Thanks. <laughs> he used her mirror to look at his face and clean the blood from it. And when he was finished, he gave himself a sinister look and stuffed the bloody tissues into his pocket with the book. As he handed the mirror back to the lady in front of him, it fell to the bus floor and it shattered. His body twitched down and began to pick the glass up. His right hand picked it up and he put it in his open left hand. Just then, the bus slowed down and he squeezed the shards into his hand. Blood began to creep from beneath <laughs> his fingers and the tissue lady turned her face forward and put her head down as to sleep. <laughs> I turned away to the window and I watched the weeds in the ditch go by. It all made me feel like when I worked at the old motel up the road from the pitcher. When it was payday, I would go into Mr. Tucker's office and he'd get stuck there. And I'd get stuck with him listening to his bourbon breath stories until he'd hand over my paycheck. He'd ramble to me about his 
business dealings, things he did wrong as a young man, and things I did not want to hear about, his women. He was a drunken mess, but he had that lowland, southern gentrified way of saying the most sexist, violent, and violent things without saying them at all. <laughs> Every now and then he'd ask me if I ever talked at all. I'd smile and say, I do, and try to change the conversation to my paycheck. But he wouldn't let me talk. I felt thick and dense and expanding like chalky toothpaste in a new tube waiting for an outside hand to squeeze it. And when he'd hand over my paycheck, I'd sprout wings and fly out of the office like a swallow from a burning barn. <laughs> there was no way off this bus unless <laughs> I wanted to get off in Iowa, and Iowa was not the Black Hills of South Dakota. I was stuck there with a madman, and no good would come of his preaching as Deanie used to say, thank God he turned his way away from me, but he offered his wisdom to any who would listen to him and his lofty rants. We sat high above the road, pointing west. I made no contact with anyone. I made no eye contact with anyone and wrote a story coming from somewhere out of anger, impatience, and a desire to be free. Traveling so far by bus was a bad dream. No sleep, the faces all looked with the same longing to be anywhere else. <laughs> My gut pinched with hunger. The smell of feet and shoes ruined my cheese sandwich. Even my blood felt dirty. <laughs> I had to write something. My pen stopped my hand from shaking, and I cuddled my notebook close to my chest. I've been here before, I've seen this room, and I've 
walked these floors, you know, I used to live alone before I knew you. And I've seen your flag on the marble arch, and love, it's not a victory march, it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. done my best it wasn't much you see i couldn't feel so i tried to touch i told the truth i didn't come to fool you and even though it all went wrong i'll stand before the lord of song with nothing on my tongue but We know some cool people, don't we? <laughs> Everybody give a hand to our performers tonight. <laughs> Michelle Barrett, 
this was her first time, I think, reading for any audience larger than her husband. So please uh, give her a pat on the back. Let her know she did all right. Sean Craver, Eliana, hang out, eat some food, chat amongst the group here, and uh, thanks for coming out. The Outrider podcast was recorded live in a private venue in Wichita, Kansas. Event sound was engineered by Kurt Turner, and the podcast was edited and produced by Heather Ann Eden.